Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals, doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ema McSweeney. Ema McSweeney is an expert on studying the brain, such areas as dementia and Alzheimer's, and not just the diagnosis of it, but steps that we can take right now to help prevent ourselves uh, from developing such problems and such diseases as we age. I hope you find this a fascinating hour. Emma, thank you very, very much uh, for joining us. I believe you're calling us from your Birmingham office today. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization, please. Well, thanks very much. So, um, well, well, personally, my background as a neuroradiologist, but I think what I'm sort of really keen to uh, mention is that about 10 years ago, I set up Recognition Health. Um, and we did that, and I do that now where I work as part of a team of really amazing brain and mind experts. And um, we really sort of set this up because we're very focused on advancing the diagnosis and treatment and particularly access to new treatments for people who have conditions that are affecting their brain and their mind, either developmental or in terms of progressive um, degeneration, so neurodegenerative diseases affecting the brain and mind and the way we, way we can and do think. Now, uh, obviously, part of the, the primal story is all about trying to eat as healthily as we can and cutting down on the sugars and the packaged foods. How big a part do you believe food plays, you know, with our sort of uh, mental wellness, certainly as we age and, you know, the onset of sort of Alzheimer's and so on? Is getting our food right from an early age important or is it more, more important in later years or Give us your feedback on, on, on how food fits into all this. Uh, well, I think the first thing to say is that it obviously is extremely important uh, in the context of, you know, we are what we eat and we, you know, how we think is who we are. But um, I think the sort of just in terms of facts, the dry waste of the brain is actually 60% made out of fat and a huge percentage of our brain is obviously fluid or water. So what we eat dramatically affects the function of our brains and keeping our brain health in, in tip-top condition. Um, so obviously because of the consistency of our brain, fats are very important. So um, like omega-3 and fatty acids, um, also um, a number of different minerals are very important for brain function. So things like vitamin D, magnesium, selenium, zinc, um, tryptophan, things like that, in order, you know, making sure that we get an appropriate balanced diet with those components in our diet is very important. Um, and then obviously keeping well hydrated is also very important for brain function. But I think there's a sort of distinction between keeping really healthy, and that's something that ideally should be started from the day we're born, um, as opposed to also trying to correct imbalances and maintain good brain health 
as we get older and, and other conditions and other um, if you like, illnesses intervene, which um, negatively impact on our brain. And at that time, it's even more important to do everything possible through diet and other um, means to optimize brain health. Excellent. And, and, and some of that, I want to pick on a few things there. And so let's take hydration. Is it something that you know you'd want to try and stay hydrated from an early age and getting our kids you know, to start drinking water right now uh, and the right amount of water all the way through, or is it just something we've got to worry about towards the end when you know when we're more likely to say get something like Alzheimer's, or is it something that builds up? In other words, should we be addressing this earlier? Or is it something we just need to worry about you know, as we get older? No, the, I mean, the answer is that in the same way as looking after the rest of our body, we should definitely be looking after our brain from the very, very beginning. I mean, in, in children, I mean, obviously they can dehydrate much more quickly um, than potentially in adults because they're just smaller, et cetera. But it, it is very important um, in children to make sure that they are well hydrated. I mean, one of the problems with adults is that often, either just because we're very busy or because we prefer um, maybe drinking things that actually dehydrate us more, so like coffee and beer and things like that and wine, um, we can often inadvertently become quite dehydrated. Um, so maintaining a good fluid balance is, and it's not just for the brain, it's for everything, but it is particularly important. Um, for the brain, but ev everything is important from the word go. But obviously, the if you like, the sorts of implications are slightly different at, at different ages. Um, and it's just something that hydration alone is just something that people, a lot of the time, just tend to forget <laughs> to drink. Absolutely. Uh, picking up, I mentioned tryptophan, which I think we get from a lot of things like. I believe turkey's rich in it and, yeah. and some other meats. I remember, reading a, book, I remember yeah. being a, reading a book from uh, Dr. Robert Lustig about the difference between happiness and pleasure and happiness needs serotonin and tryptophan helps us create serotonin. Have I sort of got that one right? Yeah, yeah. No, and again, these, these things, the sort of like minerals, if you like, it's only a matter of just maintaining a good balance. Um, so, main, so ensuring that those things are included in the diet. It's not like, you know, we need to sort of go and have a meal of, of tryptophan. <laughs> it, it's more that it's important. And I think these particularly both whilst growing, because, like you know, the brain is growing the same as the same as everything else. Um, and, and unfortunately, the brain really sort of like starts declining probably from about the age of about 25 or whatever. But both during the development and later in life, it's just important to keep a, a good balance of these different different minerals. Um, but one needs to be quite sweat depleted that it that it would suddenly become a really obvious missing factor in someone's brain and therefore start to affect their cognition and everything. But it's it's just wise to to keep these these elements um, in balance throughout life. Yeah. I mean, sadly, my mother's got Alzheimer's and I, you know, I'm always, because of the work I do, always trying to work out why that's happening, why that's happening. Sometimes obviously you can't explain things, but if I look back at her life, she, she uh, never went out in the sun because her doctor had told her, mustn't go out in the sun, it's bad for you. Uh, a bit like myself, she probably drank a bit too much wine, but yeah, I can't ever remember seeing my mom drink a glass of water. In fact, for some people I know, some friends that you just, they just never seem to drink water. 
And like you say, yeah. they think that because they're drinking coffee, tea, and a few glasses of wine or a beer, that's hydration. But that's kind of the opposite, isn't it? Because that sort of dehydrates you, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, that, that actually dehydrates you. Yes, I mean, it's drinking water that, that, that you need to drink. But it, it, Alzheimer's, for example, is sort of slightly more complex in so much as that, yes, you could do absolutely everything right or everything according to the book, but it, it doesn't mean that you won't necessarily then get that particular condition because there's lots of factors that, um, as best we know and understand, that can predispose you um, to that particular condition. And actually, age is the, is the biggest risk factor. Yeah, what about, uh, what's your view on a lot of doctors and specialists saying that actually uh, you can link Alzheimer's to uh, diabetes and fat, some are calling it diabetes type 3. Are they barking up the wrong tree or is there an element of truth in that? Um, there definitely is um, a connection uh, between the two and um, it does it does seem to be that, and, and, and in fact, there's even been one situation where a drug that was used for treating diabetes was demonstrated to actually slow down further progression of cognitive symptoms in people who also coincidentally had Alzheimer's. So there definitely is a connection. And there's also um, a big connection there between um, like the ketogenic state that lots of people talk about and um, the use of sugar. So sugar is, if you like, probably one of the worst things for us, and it's very bad for the brain. Um, so whilst it's not a case of everyone with diabetes gets Alzheimer's or everybody else has diabetes, I mean, that obviously is not the case. But there are certain pathways for metabolism, which particularly if you have a propensity to, for example, if you have a potential propensity to um, Alzheimer's, it's even more important to make sure that you are careful about your ingestion of sugar and, and trying to change your sort of like metabolism in your brain, if you can, from um, a sort of like a, a glucose or a, a sugar-led type of metabolism. And, and would that be the same, uh, you're talking about sugar there, but you're also talking about things that turn into sugar. So, you know, you're minimizing yeah. maybe your breads, your pastas and your rice and maybe changing your rice for cauliflower rice and, and, and those sort of changes. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think probably everyone listening to your program is very aware of this, but um, what a lot of people don't realise is that foods which one doesn't necessarily think of containing sugar actually contain very large quantities of sugar. So, um, I mean, I think the classic example is probably white bread um, contains loads of sugar, bagels, things like that. Um, so even though they're not I don't know, like sweets and chocolates and things that you immediately associate with containing sugar. Um, most of these other foods and certainly processed foods, et cetera, contain actually quite large volumes of sugar. Right, absolutely. And it's interesting, isn't it? You know, my, my dad's, they're both 80, so they've, they've had a the good innings, but, um, you know, my dad's become, obviously they've eaten the same thing, they've been married for 60 yeah. years, bless them. Yeah, and it's manifested in my dad as diabetes and my mom uh, as Alzheimer's. Um, and, and, yeah. and, yeah, like you say, you can never predict who's going to get it. And, and I think more people need to be talking about openly about mental health and mental wellness. I've got a friend, uh, well, a friend's dad, and he was a rocket scientist. I mean, that was his job. He yeah. was a rocket yeah. scientist. And yet he's yeah. got really bad Alzheimer's now. And, he, and we need to all be more open to talk about it because it can just seem to happen to literally even the brightest of people. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think one of the things about Alzheimer's, it doesn't respect, you know, intelligence levels or, you know, anything. I mean, it, it is completely um, indiscriminate in terms of who it, who it actually affects. Um, and I think now people are beginning to increasingly recognise that this is one of the biggest healthcare crises that's, if not already here, that's you know, like coming in the future, future decade or two. And, and one of the reasons why people are so much more aware of it is because for a long time, there's always been this myth that, you know, your sort of like memory gets worse as you get older. And to a large extent, that's just like 100% not true. There may be certain things that you're not concentrating as much or a little bit slightly more forgetful because you're not at work and you haven't got the same number of um, checks and balances and things that you're constantly trying to um, achieve. But on the whole, your memory and your cognition, your calculation ability and your ability to navigate in space, all of these things don't necessarily get worse as you get older. So first, I think people are recognising that it's much, much more common than they had previously recognised. I think the second thing is that we do now have much more sensitive um, techniques for being able to identify the presence of this particular disease. Um, and then the other thing is just we are an ageing demographic and so there are more and more people who are older and so therefore the both the prevalence and the incidence of the condition is is increasing. Yeah, and that's so, yeah. very interesting thought. Um, tell me about, you know, we exercise our body in the gym. We, we, you know, we, we, we know we should go and walk more and get out in nature and occasionally you know, lift some weights and you know, we exercise there. It is using is that thing about you know use your brain or lose it is 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 there an element of truth in that and if so what sort of exercises work best for the brain? So the answer is yeah, exercise is really really important, and I think that there, there have now been some really quite big uh, international studies that have been done to demonstrate this, and and again it's for everything, but. Some of the big studies that were done were done actually, particularly in the context of Alzheimer's and, and other causes of dementia. And um, what, it, what it has been found is that if you do 20 minutes of quite intense exercise at, th at least three to four times a week, it, as a population, um, it does actually reduce the um, incidence of development of Alzheimer's. And there is evidence now that it can actually work sort of via an epigenetic route. So it actually changes the coding of our genes, which predisposes us to developing Alzheimer's. So exercise, suffice to say, is extremely important. And, and exercise together with um, diet, appropriate diet, sleep, um, and actually just general sociability, so keeping our brains active, can reduce, again, as a sort of global population, can reduce the incidence of um, developing Alzheimer's by about 53%. So the answer is that, you know, whilst we can't, once you've got it, you actually do need to have um, ideally access to, you know, these new generation medications designed to actually slow down further progression of disease. But in the context of trying as a population to prevent um, onset of cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's, um, and actually other causes such as vascular disease as well, exercise, diet, sleep, um, and keeping your brain active are very significant um, preventative components. And I know we've talked before about keeping the brain itself exercise and active, and I think in the past you've said 
you know, things like reading, musical instruments, yeah. uh, you know, do, keeping it active. Give us a few examples of maybe hobbies we could maybe get into or think yeah. of that help stimulate and keep the brain active. So it's, because uh, I yeah. guess the more you use it, the, 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 the stronger it gets. Uh, it's not one of those things that uh, if you overuse it, it goes the opposite way, is it? It wears out. Uh, no, it's, it is very much the case that the more, the more you use it, the better it is. But um, one of the things that's a bit of a myth, actually, and it's quite important to dissect this further, is that if you – there's been a lot of sort of like originally there were these things called Nintendo brain training, and there's, there's sort of like certain um, computer-type games that people say, oh, this is brain training. A lot of the time what happens with that is you just get good at doing that particular type of puzzle or – brain training exercise so really the sort of things that you need to do is things like um, learning another language uh, learning a musical instrument um, obviously sort of like reading um, reading something that's like a little bit more taxing than maybe just a you know like a, a very simple novel I mean actually sort of like reading and understanding something new so maybe delving into a particular area in history or something like that so correlating information from one thing you read with something else you read um and then um again this thing this sort of thing called sociability is is actually very important because it's spontaneous dialogue it's remembering what people have been talking about it's formulating your thoughts based upon an argument and all of that is is really important and that's actually much much more significant than just doing just doing these sort of like you know um, computer brain training type things. That's great advice. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that before. That's, that's brilliant. Thank you. Um, and you've you've mentioned the word that it doesn't matter where I'm talking to somebody about uh, a doctor around happiness and uh, or stress or heart or cardiovascular. You know, you just everybody keeps saying that word sleep, and I don't know whether sleep was on the radar 20, 30 years ago. How important it is. How important is sleep to you know, to get the, the brain in, you know, try and keep it in tip-top order? And, and what's your view on how much sleep you think that yeah. might be? I mean, I think, you know, like, I think you are right. It's almost like sleep is the, is the new big thing. Um, and I'm not personally a, a sleep expert, but um, there is no question that we do now understand a lot more about what happens when we're asleep. And, it, and it's not just that we're not awake. Um, it, it is actually a positive, active thing, being asleep. Um, and it does not only sort of like reconfigure a lot of the chemical um, interactions and reactions in the brain um, and help to store memories, um, but it does actually also enable the clearance of some of the more harmful proteins um, in the brain that, if you like, you know, I suppose sort of like build up during the day. Um, so it's the same maybe as sort of like, you know, resting other muscles after you've been exercising. Um, so what is the, you know, like the exact number, correct number of hours of sleep? It does actually vary from one person to another. And some people are more efficient sleepers than other people. But I think on the whole, it's probably safe to say it's somewhere between I don't know, probably six and a half and eight and a, eight and a half hours sleep for the average person. Um, but it, there is a sort of thing that, you know, if you sleep too much, then you get a bit, you know, you get a bit, not so much lazy, but a bit lethargic almost. So th there is a, an optimal level around probably 
six and a half, seven to eight, eight and a half hours sleep a night. Um, and there is an element where if you do lose sleep over a period of time, the brain, the brain does sort of like focus on the most important type of sleep. So you can catch up, but you don't really ever, I think my understanding is you don't really ever completely catch it up. Like it, it's not a it's not a good idea to not pay attention to your sleep. Um, but you know, on the other hand, like it was probably very boring if we all just sleep, eat, and exercise all the time. So it's it's a case of maintaining a sensible balance. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, I remember reading years and years ago that you know when you lose a, a you know a neuron in the brain, you never ever get them back. Uh, they're gone for good. That's why you know boxing or heading a football. You know, you've got to be really really careful. You never regenerate brain cells. But there. I've read that there are some brain cells that regenerate. A, is that true? And if so, what area of the brain you know, can we rebuild? Yeah, so it's it's a bit confusing, and I like I can't sit here and say that there isn't a single brain cell that can never regenerate. But the general principle is that the the brain does have a degree of plasticity. Obviously, when we're when we're very very young, and the brain is purely in a phase of development, then um, the brain can remap. So say, for example, um, if you're very young and you had to, I don't know, a little stroke or something like that, or it happened even like, you know, before you were born when you were in the uterus, then the brain will remap so that you, you never actually even know that that has happened. Um, as we get older, that ability for the brain to remap will, will decrease significantly. Um, but it still can happen to a certain extent. The, the next thing is that sometimes brain cells, say, for example, with a stroke or something, brain cells can be, in the, in the intense area of the stroke, the brain cells will be completely destroyed. But there's often a sort of penumbra around that where the brain cells are sort of like affected, but they haven't been completely destroyed. And often those brain cells, you know, with a lot of physio and a lot of speech therapy and everything else, they can actually start to, you know, develop a little, a few more connections and start, you start to get some function back in those brain cells. Um, but as a general rule, and I think this is sort of like particularly the argument for things like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, things like that, that when the brain cell has died, they don't behave like um, other cells in the body, which, which on the whole generally do regenerate. Brain cells don't really regenerate. And, and that's actually the sort of the whole reason for the emphasis in terms of for these progressive neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's to detect them as early as you possibly can. Because the, if the new medications are designed to try to slow down further progression, then just by definition, the earlier you can detect that you have a progressive neurodegenerative problem, the better, because you, you need to intervene as soon as you possibly can before more of the brain cells have died. So, and, and is, is, that, is, that, is that something you normally spot yourself, or if you're in a relationship, you're married? Is it something normally that your partner would spot? And then obviously that's quite, I guess, a difficult conversation yeah. to broker. Um, but is it something that you you can spot yourself, uh, or is it normally something you'd spot in a loved one? And you know, with us all hopefully now talking about things more openly. You come to a clinic like yours, you do some tests and you may have it, you may not have it, it might be something totally different, but then spotting yeah. it early, that's when experts like yourself can help 
you know, yeah. the right path. Is that correct? Or yeah. So so at our recognition health clinics, we see we obviously do see people who have quite advanced cognitive decline or impairment, but we also see people who. Um, are actually even at the point where they're not sure if there's something wrong. Um, but having seen just like hundreds and hundreds of people um, now with cognitive symptoms, what is quite interesting is that when you sort of go back and you say, look, in retrospect, when, when you think this actually started, it's amazing the number of people who say, well, I just knew something wasn't quite right. Usually it will be about maybe two, three, four years earlier. Um, and the sorts of things that people say is that for themselves, they'll say, I just noticed that I was forgetting to, to do things or I was having to start to make lists, whereas I never really needed to do that before. Or somebody would ask me if I had done something and I'd realise that I didn't even remember them telling me to do it, or they start losing things. Um, sometimes one of the things that, particularly if their job involves a lot of, sort of manipulation of numbers, they might often say, you know, it's really weird, but I, I just don't seem to be able to manipulate or have the same facility with numbers that I had previously. So it's not like adding them up or something, but it's just maybe understanding spreadsheets and and having an, an intuition about when numbers are right or wrong. So, so there's lots of like really subtle things that, that people notice about themselves. But I think because decline in cognition is so subtle and it's so nebulous, really, people can both um, compensate for it really well and they can also ignore it for, for quite a while. Um, before other people really start to notice. In terms of what do other people notice, and, and often it will either be a, an individual's partner or it'll be somebody that they work with very closely, is they'll just start to notice that maybe the individual sort of repeats themselves without realising, um, or again, they will sort of ask them to do something and then they'll find they've forgotten how to do it or, or they've forgotten to do it. Um, and again, they just sort of usually it's extraordinary. Usually most people assume that the other person, in other words, the person who is developing these early symptoms is just not concentrating and just not just not making an effort. And particularly in the domestic scenario. So someone's partner. Um, I cannot tell you how many people come in and the, the individual will say, look, I am now getting really worried about I'm just not remembering things or various different aspects of their cognition. And I say to the, the partner, well, what do you think? And they just say, well, I don't know. I think they just, just don't listen to me or they just don't concentrate um, or they just don't think, you know, what I'm saying is important. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, we obviously all have an element of that, but it's, I don't know, maybe it's just seeing lots and lots and lots of people. But I think that actually it's not that difficult to, um, work out when something is for real or um, it, it is just a lack of concentration. I mean, it's what one really wants to try and do and what we're doing the whole time is we're trying to identify, even in the first sort of like encounter, we're trying to identify, has somebody got a reversible cause of cognitive impairment? And then things like stress, 
anxiety, depression, um, I don't know, like you could have you know, B12 deficiency, things like that. Um, and in which case you want to know as soon as possible because you want to treat that and you want to reverse those reversible cognitive symptoms. Or are you actually looking at the beginning of something which is a progressive neurodegenerative disease such as Alzheimer's? And in which case, again, you want to confirm the diagnosis using the right biomarkers, et cetera, and then you want to treat as soon as you possibly can, because the, the earlier you can get in, the, the more effective you can be. So like, it really is a sort of case of that, like information and knowledge is power. So like the if you're worried, it's unbelievably important to present as soon as you can. And, and I think one of the problems is that people sort of feel embarrassed or anxious and worried that they don't want to know that this could be the beginning of something which is more serious. And they almost they almost sacrifice the potential that actually it could just be something that's easily reversible because they are so worried about it being the beginning of something that is more serious because they don't know that there is something that, that we can do if it is the beginning of something more serious. What happens when somebody's already, you know, so my mum will, uh, even when we go around, she'll remind me 10 times in half an hour that I was only £4 when I was born. That's the one she always throws at me. And, and uh, she's only got three kids and she always gets my, my brother and my name wrong. Uh, she forgets uh, I'm a granddad already. And so she's a great grandma. She's no, got no idea which uh, grandchild belongs to which of her children and so on. Um, so she's got it pretty bad, but is it, is it ever too late to then try and make an intervention to just slow it down a little bit? Or does it get to a point where, you know, like say if she's saying the same thing 20 times in half an hour, that there's just nothing you can do? Or is there still a hope to slow it down? So, so the answer to that is that, like I always like to think that there's always something you can do. Um, but in terms of, um, let's say, you know, like access to these new medications designed specifically to slow down further progression. Um, th those medications today are not yet on the market, so they're all in clinical trials. These are big international studies going on across the world, and, and that's one of the things that we do at Recognition. We, in our various centres across the UK, we give people the opportunity to be able to get into these studies. Now, for all of those studies, there is actually a, a cognitive profile that you have to fit because obviously the medication is designed to treat people with that particular cognitive profile. Um, but the answer to your question is that actually, I, I don't know how to put this in a colloquial terminology, but you sort of have to be really quite advanced or sort of quite far gone for it to be too late. I mean, it's, you know, I think people, that there's a really big sort of differentiation between having mild cognitive impairment um, due to probable AD and actually having dementia. And in fact, the, the only difference between the two is that the, the definition of dementia is just having progressive cognitive impairment in more than one or two cognitive domains. And that level of cognitive impairment affecting what's called your activities of daily living. And, and activities of daily living is a pretty loose loose term, but it just essentially means things like, you know, like shopping and cooking and, you know, just sort of like just sort of basic tasks that everybody does. Um, and if you can no longer do those things on your own and you have to have help for them, then you've crossed over into the sort of like area where you now have, you know, have dementia. But really for the vast majority of 
the time when somebody has cognitive impairment and, if you like, diagnosable Alzheimer's disease, they have, they're in the category of mild cognitive impairment. They're, they're not in the, at the stage where they've developed dementia. But most of these new um, medications are designed for the, really the entire spectrum of mild cognitive impairment and the early stages of dementia. So, so the answer to your question is that, to be honest, most people do actually do actually fit the criteria, um, and particularly people who are still, if you like, out and about and you know living at home and you know shopping and doing all of these things. Um, and I and I think that for me, the the thing that's most disappointing is when people have just left it too late. Um, and the most common thing that people say in our clinics is, I wish I'd known about this earlier. So because there's no, like, there's, there's literally no logical reason not to try to get, and it's all completely free of charge. Um, there's no logical reason not to try to get um, access to a medication that is at least designed to try to try to slow down further progression of your symptoms. And, and, you know, they are in clinical trials, so there is a phase when you could be on the drug or on the placebo. But with the vast majority of these, these big international studies, after you've completed that section of the study, you then go on to the next part where everybody's getting the, the active medication. Um, and it's probably going to be quite, you know, it's still going to be three, four, five years before the first of these drugs are actually on the market. And, and obviously, if something is progressing the whole time, then it may well be that if you have mild symptoms now, by the time the drugs are actually available on the market, then it may be too late for you. So, so that's the other sort of like imperative to act as soon as you possibly can. Yeah, and I think that's nothing to be lost. Yeah, I pick up on something you said there. You know, people say just I wish I knew this was available. So that's one of the things we're going to try and get the message out for you uh, that it is yeah. available because. You know, back to my, my friend's dad, who was a rocket scientist. He had it yeah. so bad in the end that he's now in a home because, you know, he could never find his way home when he walked into Stratford. He almost set fire to the house so many times he'd leave the kettle on or something burning. You know, he's ended yeah. up in a home. And my mum's not at that point yet. You know, she's, yeah. she's still driving. She still goes and does her own shopping. Maybe, maybe not the moment yeah. with COVID, but... We, uh, we need a chat, yeah. yeah. So, so people need to know it can get a lot, lot worse. So, you know... Don't think it's too late. Get in. And, and yeah. just like yeah. you would if you were having angina or chest pains, you'd go and see yeah. a doctor. You know, yeah. there, are, there is things that can be done. And thanks to, you know, organizations and research uh, and people like yourself. So uh, big thank you to everybody that, 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 you, that, that you're helping in that way. What is the difference between Alzheimer's and, and, and dementia? Or is, is Alzheimer's a type of dementia? Yeah. So, and in fact, that, that's actually also a really um, common um, misunderstanding, to be honest with a lot of people. So the, an the answer is that um, Alzheimer's is a particular condition. So just the same as Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis or you know any, any of these conditions. Dementia is just a state. So it, it, as I described, it just, it, all it really means, and the best way to think about it is, if you think about dementia as an umbrella, um, so, all of the conditions like Alzheimer's disease, Huntington's disease, Parkinson's disease, vascular, cerebral vascular disease, they can all cause or result in dementia. So most of the time when you have any one of these conditions, you 
you are mildly cognitively impaired. You don't have dementia. You don't wake up in the morning, one morning with dementia. You just have mild symptoms of cognitive impairment. But after a period of time, because these diseases are progressive and particularly if not treated, then um, you then reach a point where you, if you like, you qualify for going underneath the dementia umbrella. And so dementia, as I said, is just it just means your cognitive impairment, for whatever reason that you have it, that cognitive impairment has now progressed to the point where it's interfering with your activities of daily living and it's involving more than one of your cognitive domains. So cognitive domains are things like calculation ability, um, short-term memory, uh, visuospatial problems, you know, like getting lost in a familiar environment, um, thought, slowing of thought processing, decision-making, planning, all of these different things are different cognitive domains. And if it's affecting um, more than two of those cognitive domains and has reached that level of severity that you're now not really sort of like independent anymore, then it's termed dementia. But it can be due to any one of several different conditions. Okay, so, so, so I, I don't have to worry yet about the fact that sometimes and I have a complete mental block on somebody's name, even though it's somebody I've been working with for five years and I'm really well. I'm just thinking, oh, I forgot that person's name. And then and in your, in your head you go, well, I know it's not Brian. I know it's not Dave. I know it's not Mike. Oh, it's Fred. You know what I mean? Uh, but that's the only thing I've ever seen to have a problem with. But it, it, I don't know whether it's getting worse, but I've, maybe I've always been that way. But, um, so, but you need, it's more when it's one or two other things as well, is it? Yeah, I mean... Uh, I, short term memory loss is, is a very sort of like early and characteristic feature of a number of different cognitive problems, of, again, which like Alzheimer's is just the most common. But specifically just forgetting people's names is actually really very common. And, and that's not that, you know, if you just said to me, I can't remember people's names, I just say, fine you know like that that's not that's not enough <laughs> um but i think the the other thing which it's really important to distinguish between is it's just a like lack of concentration and very often if you're you know if you're say like introduced to five people at once and you can't remember all of their names immediately that's sort of partly more because you, you sort of like you're actually not making a massive effort to remember all of their names but just forgetting people's names is not that that on its own is not you know, that's incredibly common. The, the other thing is that one feature, which is it occurs like a little way in, so to speak, to, to the condition, but one feature which is very, very significant. And if you're sort of wondering, you know, if you know someone and you're thinking, oh, I, I wonder if they you know, might have got a problem or not, is when you encounter the situation that you're talking to somebody and um, you, you sort of say, oh, do you remember last week, you know, we, we did this or that or something? And they go, oh, I don't remember that. Um, and it may be, you know, like you went somewhere or you had dinner or, you know, it was like, it was like something sort of more than just you, you have to make a remark or something. And then you say to them, you must remember, do you, you know, we were with these other people and, I don't know, you were wearing a red dress and, you know, afterwards we went in the car or something. And you give them some cues and they still can't remember it. They just, they just can't recreate that picture in their brain. That's really significant. So it's the absence of being able to remember something, even with cues, which is in the relatively short term, that you really, really need to pay attention to. The, the other thing is that 
a lot of people think, well, there can't be anything wrong with me because I can remember everything that happened 20 years ago. Your long-term memory is in a completely different sort of like place in the brain and it's a completely different set of pathways. So the classic situation is the fact that, you know, with Alzheimer's or whatever, is that you can't remember what you had for breakfast or you can't remember what you did last week, but you can remember what you did when you were at school. You know, that, that is, and being able to remember long-term memories is, is just, that's just completely different. It's, it's got nothing to do with the fact that you can't, the fact you can't remember short-term memories remains extremely significant, even though you can remember long-term memories. That's really, really good advice. And people watching, that's a great thing to look out for, isn't it? And give the few mm -hmm. cues. And if they still with the cues, don't, uh, it doesn't trigger yeah. something, then, then definitely try and get in to see somebody like yourself. Yeah. Um, how big a part do genetics play in this? Or is it more about epigenetics? Or um, if, 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 if somebody, you know, your father or your grandfather had it, are you more likely to get it? Or So, so the, the sort of like good and bad news here. <laughs> So the the bad news is it's really really common. Um, I mean, this is for Alzheimer's is is very very common, and um, particularly now that everyone's living longer, um, is really rare to almost like find somebody who doesn't have a grandparent um, or depending on their age, you know, a parent who didn't develop cognitive symptoms, whether or not actually diagnosed, but say in their sort of like 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, it just is very common. Um, about 3% of the global population do have, um, if you like, a sort of a genetic predisposition. Um, and those people will invariably have the scenario where two or more first degree relatives have developed cognitive symptoms diagnosed or not but often not diagnosed but cognitive symptoms in their sort of like 40s 50s 60s um and that that is much there's a much more significant situation now the, there are there is a um a genetic test it's something called apo protein e4 um and if you have two apo protein e4 Gene, so like one from your mother and one from your father, um, then you are more likely, not doesn't it's not necessarily 100% correlation, but you are more likely to um, have a predisposition to developing Alzheimer's and, and possibly at a slightly earlier age. And about 3% of the population have that apoprotein E4, it's called homozygous, it means they've got two apoprotein E4 genes. Um, about 23% of the population, so nearly a quarter of the population, have one apoprotein E4 gene. Um, and it's felt that possibly those people, together with having elevated levels of like amyloid protein in their brain, could be a, certainly probably are at increased risk. Um, and then the other 75% of people don't have an apoprotein E4 gene. But again, it doesn't mean that they're 100% immune. So it, it, like it's, it's probably just one gene marker, and there's probably a lot of other gene markers that we don't know about yet. Um, but the, the, the sort of like, you know, is it hereditary? It's, the condition is not inherited, but can you have an increased sort of risk due to your genetics? Yes, that, that has been identified.
Um, and so, and today, the, the the link or the identification of the at-risk gene is this apoprotein E4 gene. Um, but you know, I think for the vast majority of people, the the answer is that it just is very common, and, and age is the biggest risk factor. And so, like the the older you are, if you like, if you're concerned that you have got memory problems, then as you get older, it becomes more and more likely that that it's more likely to be something like Alzheimer's than it's say likely to suddenly be onset of depression or something. So as a general, if you're over 50 and you've never had depression or depressive symptoms in your life, then the chances that you're going to suddenly start developing depression for sort of like no apparent reason is actually very, very low. So this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's no there's no like distinct, you know, definitive answer, but there are lots of risk factors. Yeah, it's like risk it's more risk factors. Yeah, and there's an analogy I put in my book. Tell me if this is relevant for dementia and Alzheimer's. My, my analogy is for most things, even if there is an element of genes in there, so it might mean you're slightly more predisposed to it, therefore it's almost like your gun might be loaded with whatever your parents have had. But your environment and your food and your yeah. exercise still need to pull yeah. the trigger. So it just probably means yeah. that you've got to be a bit more careful. Do the things that you've mentioned so far, you know, three yeah. times a week exercising, more hydration, you know, make sure yeah. you, you're eating good foods with lots and lots of nutrition, maybe, you know, yeah. supplement with omega or magnesium and things like that. But but doing more steps that that try to make sure you just don't fire the gun, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it, you know, it's sort of like you know, our our body and brain is the, if you like, it's the most valuable thing that we're given, and um, we just have to really look after it as well as we possibly can. Um, I mean, you, know, you still get run over by a bus or something <laughs> if you look after it really, really well. But I think that probably one of the things that we're increasingly aware of is. Is, is actually just trying not to abuse, you know, not to abuse our bodies and brains and try to look after them as well as we possibly can. Um, yeah, and, you know, everything we eat and is just incre is incredibly important. But you know, if you are at the point where you, you do have symptoms and you are worried, uh, you know, I think the message is to seek help because apart from anything else, um, you will just worry about it. And anxiety affects our cognition really significantly. So, you know, I mean, the ultimate anxiety is like stage fright or something. So, you know, if you're really anxious, you know, you can't remember anything. <laughs> um, so it, it is a case of just being proactive, being sensible, being well-informed. And actually, one of the things that we do at Recognition Health is we have a team of people who are just literally taking phone calls all of the time mm -hmm. from um, people who you know, maybe not either are actually really worried for a very good reason um, or just not sure and um, want to, you know, and we, we have a whole raft of sort of very quick screening that we can do um, just over the phone to give us a really good idea as to whether someone's maybe just like a bit anxious and worried or, or whether, you know, we need to bring them in and go to the sort of like the next stage with them. And do people come direct to you or is it something they speak to their dots? I've heard of uh, recognition. Uh, can you put me in touch? Do they have to get referred or? 
It's sort of both. So so people come to us like directly because maybe they've heard an advert on the radio or I know they've read something on social media or their, their GPS says, well, you know, why don't you, why don't you contact recognition? Um, on the whole, to be honest, um, I would say that more people um, come to us directly having just heard an advert or maybe hear, hearing, <laughs> hearing this um, than are referred sort of like directly, say, from their GP or whatever. Because, you know, I mean, GPs are, are managing a massive arena of conditions from, I don't know, like a, a baby with a baby with a cough to somebody with presenting with symptoms of cancer to somebody with gynecological problems. I mean, you know, they're, they're just working across a massive spectrum. Um, whereas I think an individual person who just is very worried about their you know, about their, their memory and all other aspects of their cognition is like, is probably going to be more likely to ring a centre where this is what we do um, and, and have a conversation. But we, we, yeah, I mean, we have people calling us all the time and, and answering answering calls and everything. And, and a lot of the time it is because they have found out about... Um, the potential of access to drugs through the trials, um, just through through advertising, social media, word of mouth, etc. And um, you know, as I said, the the most common comment is, "Oh my goodness, I wish I'd known about it earlier." Absolutely. So let's 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 wrap up on on the bit about the things we should be doing. So we should be drinking more, sleep water, <laughs> drinking more water, <laughs> sleep sleeping more, uh, the right amount of sleep. Try and avoid stress and anxiety. Uh, good nutrition. Uh, I, I, you mentioned vitamin D earlier, so getting out in the sunshine appropriately. Yeah. Uh, those are the things we should be doing. Uh, we know we shouldn't be heading a ball if you're a footballer, or you know, not. I advise you know, if you're a boxer, try not to get hit on the head and all those sorts of things. What about yeah, yeah. Uh, things like you know, we know smoking is obviously bad for the lungs, and drinking is bad for the liver, and and drugs are just. <laughs> no, no. Anyway, but um, yeah. how important is it to uh, avoid recreational drugs, smoking, uh, drinking, and, and, and maybe let's go on to then, you know, where you can, you know, don't be on too much medication because I, I guess even yeah. prescription drugs yeah. are, can have an effect. Yeah. So um, I think this is, you know, the, the straightforward answer to that is that. Um, there are obviously quite a lot of things that we do that that are are bad for us. So it is it is trying to reduce things that are bad for us. But to be honest, I mean, there's obviously sort of like certain recreational drugs. It is well known um, do affect the brain, and that you know that actually includes alcohol as well. Um, and you know these drugs are toxic to the brain, um, and most of the time you know, people will get away with. <laughs> With a certain amount of abuse, like everything else, because you know, like it's, the brain's not that fragile. But but on the other hand, it, you know, it's sort of like it's an accumulation of um, the wrong things over a lot of years. And the problem is that you know we want to keep our brains as good as we possibly can for as long as we can. So it's not that any of us want to. Well, I don't know. Maybe we do, but it's not that anyone, any of us, can live forever. But it's to do with really sort of like maintaining quality of life for as long as you possibly can. And and most of these things, which are 
bad for your brain are, are actually bad for the rest of your body as well. So like alcohol obviously is bad for your liver as well as being bad for your brain. Um, but then a little bit of alcohol is sort of good because it's good for sociability, it's good to relax. So, it, you know, it's a, it is a bit of sort of like a middle course is best as opposed to, you know, it's, it's the extremes, I think, which are which are really not so good, not so good for us. Um, there are obviously um, certain drugs that, you know, like a more sedative to the brain and things like that. But we, I mean, I think, you know, it's fair to say that by and large, there are certain drugs that people need to take for other conditions. And so everything we do in life is a bit of a, a risk-benefit um, balance. And, you know, where where it's important to take particular drugs and things because of the benefit that they provide, um, it should always be a scenario where that benefit greatly outweighs any potential risk. And I think, you know, that's where things like recreational drugs and that, it, it's sort of like, I mean, it is sort of like benefit, but it's not, you know, like it's not it's not clinical benefit, um, but it's where the, the risk benefit turns upside down. So the risk of these things is much greater than the, than the benefit. And then, of course, there's the sort of fact that, you know, the brain gets addicted quite easily. Um, but probably going all the way back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, the, um, the thing which the brain gets addicted to more than anything else is sugar. So we, we have a phenomenal addiction to sugar. And there, there have even been experiments where they've looked at um, like mice and rats and they give them uh, various, you know, if you like, sort of cocaine and, you know, heroin, and then they they also give them sugared water. And even though they can get addicted to cocaine and heroin, when you then um, give them sugared water, they switch to that preferentially. So, so there's just no question that probably our, our, all of our biggest addiction is probably sugar. Yeah, and, and, and sadly it's not talked about a lot, is it? And I, I, I said something the other day and they just laughed at me. I said, look, cigarette companies are bad. I mean, I used to smoke, I don't anymore, but you know, cigarette companies are bad. But they're, they're, they're probably not as evil as some of the food companies because you, know, you don't have to yeah. smoke. So once you learn how to stop it, you stop. You don't have to smoke. We have to eat yeah. to survive eventually, even if we're fast, we yeah. still at some point have to eat. So the yeah. fact that they're putting sugar into absolutely everything at the moment, yeah. you know, we've got, yeah. it, it, it's, it's what the reason we get addicted to it because hey, we've got to eat something, and, and yeah. therefore, and we don't know we're getting addicted to it because we don't even know. I mean, they, they're injecting sugar into chicken breasts and things at the moment, and it's just also terrible, yeah. terrible. So yeah, undoing that addiction is something we try and work with people because it, it's so difficult, yeah. uh, and you've yeah. almost got to you've almost got to rewire the brain, haven't you? Because you know your brain's designed. To, to hunt food, otherwise you don't survive. So we somehow have to hardwire the brain or rewire it for, I always say, you know, we're living in an unnatural time. You know, the brain is there to eat, 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 because in the past yeah. we never knew when the next meal was coming. But now we've got food 24-7. Most of it's chemically enhanced and messed with. Yeah. We, yeah. It is about, probably, I think, saying, I think all diets focus on the belly, but really diets need to focus on the brain probably yeah. more than anything. Yeah, I mean, we don't we don't need to eat all the time. <laughs> um, we weren't we weren't like designed to eat all of the time. Um, but I mean, I think I actually just happened to hear this this fact. I, did, I didn't know this. I just heard it on a podcast um, at the weekend. But um, during the years immediately um, after the last World War, when there was rationing, in particular, there was rationing of flour and sugar and everything. Um, so later onset diabetes, not type one, but type two diabetes, apparently almost just completely disappeared. 
um, as a disease. And then as soon as five years after rationing was finished, it, it started coming back and, uh, and then came back to the sort of like pre-war levels. So, I mean, I, like, I just literally heard that on a podcast. So I, I don't know like all the quote scientific papers on it or anything, but I think that it, you know, that alone is, is, is quite a sobering fact. <laughs> so, so maybe, you know, I, th I think, I think it's, um, I mean, the problem is, is that the, it's quite complicated because the, the, the brain is what controls what we eat, but um, the brain sort of like chooses to eat certain things. And so, um, for example, if we're, you know, like relatively addicted to say, I don't know, like a fizzy drink like Coke or, or we're addicted to, as in Coca-Cola, <laughs> or addicted to um, chocolate or something, the, the, brain, um, the brain perceives that we're eating it. Um, and then, and then if we've not got enough or whatever, it, it just demands more. So it's it, you're completely correct in that. What you have to do is to is almost like recondition our brains to to want to eat and to crave the right things. Yeah, um, but, you know, we don't want to get too boring either. <laughs> no, <laughs> so. but, it's, but, it's, but it's so true. It's just so so true. We've got to rewire it for. The modern environment it's not that the brain it's it, it, again it, i always say to people it's not your fault you know if you're overweight it's not your fault your body's just sending that message your brain sending that message to you that, that that's been there for the two million years and, and but you're living in unnatural times you know the fact that yeah. you and, and then of course the, the big food companies now have to play on triggers and uh, accuse yeah. triggers reward system so you know that, that, that's why every mcdonald's is identical because that's a cue and you know yeah. everything's against people trying to lose weight in so so many ways because commerce yeah. and that's what commercial companies yeah. do they try and maximize their profits but it, you need to start i think with the brain more than the belly you know if you if you're trying to yeah. turn your health around yeah no 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 definitely i mean i think it's um you know we we've sort of all been you know given given a given a good brain for a reason <laughs> and uh, I, I just think looking after it, it is just so incredibly important and what you were saying at the beginning about when do you start I mean I think the answer is like everything you have to you know you have to train um, children to um, I mean you can't train train children not to not to eat sweets and things like that but you know like as, as children get older it's, it's almost like training them to have responsibility for how they, you know, for their personal admin, if you like, how, how they how they manage their body and their brain. I don't, I don't know how when they when they appreciate that, um, because I think we all go through phases when we're we're, we're you know we're we're not terribly good. <laughs> we probably do sort of like abuse our brains and bodies, but I think it's I, I think it is now something that people are just much, much more aware of than, than probably previously. So, so is it true to say, let's, let's finish on this one then, you know, because um, you, you can put Alzheimer's and, and dementia in with metabolic syndrome, metabolic syndrome linked to insulin, so wrong food choices, certainly too much carbs, too much sugar. Is it fair to say that, that of course, you can't ever say you're not going to get Alzheimer's even if you do everything right? But is it fair to say that it's got a, a degree of preventability by getting your diet and nutrition right? Yeah, um, it, it's it's one of those things. It's it's a slightly difficult, but 
at an individual level. So the evidence isn't so much at an individual level, it's at a population level. So um, as, a, as a population, if people um, exercise, eat, you know, eat the right foods, um, you know, stimulate their brains, do all the sleep well and everything, do all the right things, then you can reduce the, the, the prevalence or the incidence um, of Alzheimer's. That has actually been, been shown. Um, but as an individual, then obviously, yes, you, know, like you, you can decrease your risks. Um, but it's not one of those things that if you do this, then you, you won't get it because it's much more complex than that. And the, um, the reason, we don't even fully understand the reasons why, why we do get it. Like there's, and there's always new theories, you know, could it be related to an infection? I mean, you've probably heard now people saying, you know, could contracting COVID now be a predisposition to cognitive impairment and conditions like that later in life? Um, you know, we know that um, you mentioned that it's very briefly repetitive brain injury and something called CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy is something now that people are really focusing on, which ultimately behaves pretty much like Alzheimer's. So, you know, it's it's, it's not just one thing. It's, it's a really multifactorial um, yeah, but, uh, sort of situation. Is it not a bit like, you know, if you do the lottery, well, get yeah. buy more tickets, you've got more chance. You're not going to definitely yeah. win anything, but you've got more... You got more chances yeah. of winning the lottery, and likewise, yeah. you know, with Alzheimer's, you can't say you're never going to get it. But if you do yeah. all the things you've mentioned so far, you just—it's yeah. just like buying more lottery tickets. You've got more chance of, of, of staying yeah. uh, a good health span um, for, for longer. Yeah. Well, I think, I, and I think probably the other way to look at it is that even if you get Alzheimer's, I mean, you—the more that you do to try to improve your health, the better you will feel. So whatever, you know, whatever cards you've sort of been dealt or whatever is going to happen, the more you do to look after yourself and all the things like diet and everything else, the better you will feel. You will better if you don't. Yeah, that's brilliant. Again, thank you very, very much for, for spending time with us, Emma. We were going to put your company name down the bottom and uh, I will continue to try and Get my dad to bring my mum to see you. Yeah, no, dude, seriously, completely separately. I mean, you've got all my contact details. Yeah. Do contact me because, yes, I, I am sure that we'll be able to help. Brilliant. All right. Thank yeah, you very indeed. much. Thank you for a great right. interview. Lovely. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not subscribe to the full series so you can hear from all the incredible health professionals we spoke to. Before you go, though, visit Amazon today and pick up your copy of Fats and Furious by Steve Bennett. And as a thank you for being a subscriber, we'll even give you a third off. Simply use the discount code FFPODCAST and you'll get the full story featuring all 23 medical professionals.